reading this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 3 and we're starting at verse 9 and going through to 19. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you which are your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's God's word this morning. Well, good morning, church. It's nice to be with you. It's quite a while since I spoke from this pulpit, and I'm very grateful to uh, Chris for the invitation to be with you today. I'm going to uh, speak to you about several ideas that come out of this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. It's one of my favorite passages. Um, Christine and I are planning to visit Ephesus in uh, October this year. We've got uh, the opportunity to travel there with some very dear friends, our our closest friends in Scotland. And it's one of those things you put on your bucket list. You want to do this before you die. About, it must be about 18 years ago, I recommended to a teacher at Scotch who was looking for another alternative place to go on honeymoon because uh, the place that he'd chosen... Uh, was subject to terrorism at the time and I recommended Ephesus to him and he sent me a postcard from Ephesus and I've still got it. I kept it in a drawer filed away with other sentimental stuff I filed away and, uh, and I, I always thought I'd love to get to Ephesus one day. I've seen pictures of it, I've seen movies of it but uh, Christine and I are hoping to get to, uh, the plan is to get there uh, in October this year. And uh, you've got that amazing story that was, uh, was read to us so well by Stephen before about the, the, uh, the Ephesian crowd crying out how great Artemis was, their goddess. Artemis is, uh, was the goddess who was housed in the great temple of Diana or Artemis at Ephesus, which was four times the size of the Parthenon. This was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It no longer exists. But when Paul went there and started preaching about a God you couldn't see, the silversmiths thought, well, nobody will want the silver ornaments that we're making. How can you make a silver ornament of a God you cannot see? 
And so they thought our trade is going to be ruined by these, these preachers of a different God. I had a friend who was an archaeologist, and when she was in Ephesus, she picked up a little plastic statue of Artemis. You can still buy statues of Artemis in Ephesus. The one that was in the temple was over two meters high, but the one I've got is about 10 centimeters high. And uh, she's made of plastic, and she's just there. I pass around sometimes, or used to it, when uh, people wanted to see it. And uh, that's all gone. And what the apostle did was he brought in this message about Jesus. And uh, chapters uh, 19 and 20 of the book of Acts, chapter 20 especially with his farewell to the elders in Ephesus, and then this letter to the Ephesians, one of the most uh, uh, rich passages of the New Testament. And it it, it has such a focus on family. I I want to uh, take you to it. Uh, I don't know if you can read it again, but I'm going to read it Again, because what I've got here is the same text from the message version of the Bible. Now, this is a version of the Bible that I've been using for some years. It's not the only version of the Bible I've been using, but it's one of my favorites, especially working in a school. And this is from verse 9. And so here I am, preaching and writing about things that are over my head, the inexhaustible riches and generosity of Christ. My task is to bring out in the open and make plain what God who created all this in the first place has been doing in secret and behind the scenes all along. Through followers of Jesus, like yourselves, gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. All this is proceeding along lines planned all along by God and then executed in Christ. Christ Jesus. When we trust in him, we're free to say whatever needs to be said, bold to go wherever we need to go. So don't let my present troubles on your behalf get you down. Be proud. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father, who parcels out all of heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his Spirit, Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. So is that passage from the message. Now, when you get old and retire from work, family assumes a bigger place in your life than it used to. I came across these delightful photographs. Uh, These are French children. And uh, they're photographed by a a well-known French photographer that I'd never heard about. But uh, that's the way it is with French photographers, I guess. And and what they're doing, these children, they're playing at families. They're playing at weddings. It reminds me of that passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, you know, uh, we played music and you didn't dance. And uh, and, uh, we played funerals and you didn't mourn. 
But here are children and what they're doing is they're mimicking adults. They're preparing for their future. And for myself and for Christine, children have been a large part of our family's lives this, this year. In fact, I want to thank you. I, I know many of you have uh, been asking from time to time and praying regularly for our grandson with leukemia. Artie finished treatment uh, a couple of weeks ago. He's had three years of daily chemotherapy uh, and numerous other treatments. And, uh, and now he's come to the end of that regime of treatment. And we're just hoping and praying that the, ke- the uh, leukemia doesn't come back. So uh, we're grateful to you for your faithfulness and prayer through this time. And uh, we want you to know that uh, we're full of hope and uh, encouragement as uh, we, we look at our, at our little grandson and uh, we thank you for your prayers on his behalf. Now, in going into this passage in Ephesians, there's no way I'm going to deal with everything it says. I'm going to pick out five things that I want to share with you today. Five things that I think matter. And uh, these are, perhaps I could just put them on the screen in front of you. Um, He's talking about followers of Jesus. He's talking about an extraordinary plan. He's talking about every family in God's purpose, every family's identity. He's talking about a glorious inner strength. And he's talking about God's secret revealed, something that's become clear now. And I want you, uh, I want to going through these things, uh, just I want you to be aware that I feel like I'm someone who's gone into a... Uh, a cave, and there's just gold seams everywhere. This passage in Ephesians chapter 3 is like a gold mine. Uh, There is rich material all around you. And I've just picked out five. There are several things that I haven't touched on, and I'm aware of that. But I hope that the points that I, I bring to you this morning will come to encourage you and strengthen you. And the first thing that, that strikes me in this passage is followers of Jesus, uh, like yourselves, gathered in churches. This is, what, this is the way the, uh, the message version of the Bible puts it. What sort of people are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about you. I'm reminded of Galatians, uh, Colossians chapter 3 where the apostle says, you are the people of God. You are. He loved you and called you for his own. Who did you think the people of God were? Did you think that they were pictures of saints with halos around their heads? Did you think they were stainless steel and bulletproof people who were untouched by flaws? No. People like you and me, we are God's people. This is what the, the, the apostle is saying to these Christians gathered in Ephesus. They've turned away from Artemis. The cult of Artemis was believed to have begun by a meteorite falling. That's why it talks about uh, in, in Acts 19. Um, and so it seems that the cult grew up around that, uh, that tradition, a very ancient cult. But, uh, but they had turned from that and they had heard about Jesus and they had come to believe that there was a God who loved them and had re- revealed that love. And, and this is an extraordinary idea and plan which is becoming known. Although when I read this I sometimes think uh, 
it's becoming forgotten. Uh, you might not know this man. This is Jonathan Sachs. He was the uh, chief rabbi in the United Kingdom. He's now Lord Sir Jonathan Sachs, uh, a remarkably erudite and a gracious and gifted man. And he, he had this to say uh, as the chief uh, rabbi of uh, the United Kingdom. Um, towards the end of his recent book, Civilization, the historian Neil Ferguson drops into his analysis an explosive depth charge. He quotes a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, part of a team tasked with the challenge of discovering why it was that Europe, having lagged behind China until the 17th century, overtook it, rising to prominence and dominance. And this is what the writer from the, uh, the researcher from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences said. He said, at first, he said, we thought it was your guns. You had better weapons than us, than we did. Then we delved deeper and thought it was your political system. Then we searched deeper still and concluded that it was your economic system. But for the past 20 years, we have realized that it was in fact your religion, Christianity. It was the Christian foundation of social and cultural life in Europe that made possible the emergence first of capitalism, then of democratic politics. And if it is true that, uh, as it certainly appears to be, that, that uh, churches are declining in the West, in the West um, I have to say that this is contested information, uh, some churches are in decline, but other churches are growing. But uh, it's certainly true that the churches are on the rise in uh, China. Some of you might have seen a, a program on, uh, I think it was a foreign correspondent program in which uh, uh, spirituality in China was explored and uh, it, the, the, uh, the journalists who went from Australia discovered uh, they were looking for a uh, unregistered church and they eventually found one with more than a thousand members and, uh, and, and this, they concluded at the end of their program that one in ten of the population of uh, southeastern China were Christian one in ten they estimated while we know that there are 30 million members of the communist party in China there are over a hundred million Christians in China Another place where Christianity is on the rise is Africa. A hundred years ago, the number of Christians in Africa was less than 10%. Today, it's estimated to be around 50%. Another place where Christianity is on the rise is Latin America. Uh, David, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of a, a sociologist, uh, Peter Berger in America, and uh, somebody he recommended and whom I looked up, David, somebody in England, both trace uh, the, the, uh, the rise of charismatic Christianity in Latin America to the, or connected with, uh, improvement in marriage relationships, improved interest in uh, fathers and the interest in and the, in the concern for and education of their children and uh, a number of other factors. So, uh, even if we're thinking we've outgrown Christianity in the West, uh, the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. And that should encourage us. Uh, 
Because the heart of the matter comes back to this. It's the, what is it that makes family? Well, it's the father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Uh, it's, the, it's the father from whom all fatherhood, the actual Greek expression is, is a sort of play on the word, it's the word father and all fatherhood comes from him. Or all, all identity, the identity of every family comes from the father. Uh, and this is to say that men and women are in the image of God. God has created people in his image. We are God-like in some sense. But in what sense? Well, I want to suggest that we are remarkable, wondrously made, says the psalmist. We have the amazing capacity to be rational and the disappointing capacity to lose our minds sometimes. But we are relational. And this, uh, this uh, little slide I put in here to remind me of the difference uh, this is Mark Gungor, he's a pastor in America and he talks about the difference between men and women on the one hand he says uh, you take a man's brain and he, he says uh, it's full of little boxes uh, there's a box for the car and there's a box for um, the money and there's a box for the kids and there's a box for the house and there's a box for everything and the boxes don't touch each other on the other hand he says, look at a woman's brain. Everything is interconnected. The money is connected to the cars, connected to the kids, connected to the school, connected to the menu. And it's all interconnected with the circuitry of emotion, he says. And then he comes back to the man's head and he says, the boxes must never touch. But the man has a favourite box. It's called the nothing box. In the nothing box the man can spend hours doing something that looks like nothing. For example, fishing. And he instances a few things. And how often does a man say what he's doing is nothing? Nothing. Nothing. How different are men and women? How exciting the difference is? How challenging the difference is? How do we relate to one another when we've got this great difference? This gulf, in a sense, between... Now, this what, what Mark Gungor does, of course, is, a, is a, a caricature. But there is this difference between men and women. And we, it's a challenge to be the kind of people we need. It. We need this inner strength. And he talks about it, inner strength. He prays for an inner strength for the Ephesian Christians. He prays that they might have uh, all that uh, the Father gives. They might be strengthened by God's Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a kind of glorious inner strength which is needed for life together. There's a, some of you might know a little television program called Outnumbered. This is a clip that I was going to show you, but I recorded in QuickTime and we haven't got QuickTime on the computer. And, uh, and what, what this clip is like, it's just a friendly, relaxing game of tennis between some adults and the children are keeping the doing the umpiring and it very quickly degenerates into an argument I don't know if you've uh, I often say to couples whose weddings I'm taking and they tell me I mean they think about children and so on my rule of thumb is that the number of children should outnumber the parents if possible so because uh, that way you can't just have a de democracy there's got to be something else at work
And, and so you need a glorious inner strength uh, to manage life together. And this little clip just reminds us that none of us are perfect people. We are all flawed. We all need the strength of God's spirit. And uh, in, the, in this clip, that's what uh, one, one sees happening, as so often in, in this uh, insightful uh, television program outnumbered. Family life is complex. Let's think for a moment about the challenge of caring. Describing, this is an, this is an Australian professor of, uh, in Sydney, describing the dramatic increase in the number of children who have been reported to child protection authorities as the canary in the coal mine, Professor Patrick Parkinson of Sydney University observes this. If there is one major demographic change in Western societies that can be linked to a large range of adverse consequences for many children and young people, it's the growth in the numbers of children who experience life in a family other than living with their two biological parents at some point before the age of 15. If there's one factor that can be linked to a large number of adverse outcomes, it's living in a, uh, in a, experiencing life in a family other than with your two parents before the age of 15. So family life makes special demands on us. The parental relationship is unique in human affairs. Parents committed to each other are by far the most willing to make massive, unbalanced investments in children. You might recall just recently the government was talking about how do we arrange for the care of children? What's appropriate in childcare facilities? How do we do that? Um, and and uh, this comment, I think, is insightful. Who else is capable and willing to make the investment? Will the state make the investment in children? Will peer groups, public or private child-rearing organisations? The answer, as any parent will tell you, is no one. No amount of public investment in children can possibly offset the private disinvestment that has accompanied the decline of marriage and the weakening of family ties. So society is changing in this way. We see it happening and it's debated in the media frequently. And as a church, we need to cherish family and the ties that family creates. And we need to be family ourselves to encourage and support one another. So we seek the glorious strength of God's spirit. So the uh, secret is revealed in this, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. Christ will live in you. It takes a special kind of loving. And the, the, the word that's used is this Hebrew word. It occurs about... 250 times in the Bible and uh, and it's it's the word that's used of pledged love I often mention this when I'm taking weddings uh, or talking to couples who want to be married the, there's a difference between falling in love and loving someone uh, falling in love is a response loving someone is a something you choose to do with your mind. It's a volitional thing. And the love of God in the Bible 
is not a falling in love. It's not that God looked out of heaven and thought, wow, what a lot of lovely people I made. No, no. God's love is this, that he, he looks at our plight and he has deep compassion and yearns to gather us. His heart goes out to us and he sets about doing something to secure our well-being. God's love is like that. It comes in, in the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. Pledged love. God promises, through you and your family I will bless all the nations of the earth. It comes in in Exodus, second book of the Bible. It comes in in so many of the books of the Bible. It's, the Psalms are full of it. The authorised version of the Bible talks about the steadfast love of the Lord. But people who fall in love are not steadfast. Not initially, anyway. Falling in love is a great way to start a relationship. I believe that. I know that. But people who fall in love are in danger of falling out of love. Because the senses are not picking up the same vibe anymore. So, what do you need? You need to get into that next stage where you consciously seek the welfare of the one you love. You yearn for them to be secure and for their joy to be complete. And so, this is the, the love of God that has been revealed through Jesus Christ. So, what have we been thinking of? Well, this image comes from the uh, exhibition that was on in Melbourne some years ago, uh, Salvador Dali. Uh, Salvador Dali was a surrealist painter from Spain and I was definitely tempted not to go to this exhibition because the adver advertisements for it featured clocks that were melted and things that were disfigured and ugly and I had no desire to go to the Salvador Dali exhibition. But suddenly at the end, like most of Melbourne, I realised that this was a rare opportunity to see something that wasn't going to come to Melbourne again and the art gallery in response to the great demand stayed open all day and all night so people could get through the exhibition. And to my great surprise, what I discovered at this exhibition was that Salvador Dali, who had left the, the faith of his childhood, returned to it after 1945. Once the, nuclear, the atomic bomb was dropped and the atomic age dawned, he suddenly be, became aware that if that could be the case, if it was true that we're made up of billions of, of, you know, of atoms and, and if an atom is a real thing and it has this energy and then, then he had closed down things much too early in his life and now he was beginning to understand and so he returned again to the faith of his childhood and he started to draw Christ images and this was one of them and this one in fact was a preparation for, for a, a work that he was to complete in the early 1950s and that work was called Christ of St. John of the Cross. This picture hangs in the art gallery in Glasgow. You should know about Glasgow. They had the Commonwealth Games there recently. So in the, the art gallery there, when I was a boy, they bought this image. And the people were astonished. Fancy paying, I think it was £56,000 for this picture. And I never liked it. I'm only showing you the top of the picture here. It's actually a suspended in, the, in space above the ground and underneath there are a few fishermen. And, and what, I, what I came to realise after going to the Dali exhibition was this, that he, he drew this image 
the, the uh, model that he, that he worked on, uh, and then finally the final image, uh, without any nails. And I didn't like it because it seemed unreal. But I came to realize that for Dali, it wasn't the nails that held Christ to the cross. He chose all of this. He set his face to Jerusalem when he was younger. He went there determined to see it through because of the love he bore for his human family. He was determined to bring healing into the world, to help people find wholeness, to create a way by which relationships could be nourished. I saw a film this week and it had the line in it, forgiveness has been seriously underrated. Forgiveness. How the world needs people who can forgive. But how can we find it? On what basis can you forgive? Well, we're invited to believe that God loves us. He's overcome the barriers by taking the pain himself. His own heart has been broken. He cut himself off from his own dearly loved son. For you and for me. And for all who open the door and let him in. Let his light shine in their lives. So the healing starts to flow into your relationships, in your family and mine, in our church and in our community. You are the people of God. He loved you. It's through Christians like yourselves in churches all over Melbourne who are listening again to the message of Jesus and understanding the extravagant dimensions of the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's awesome to us that you could give your spirit so freely we ask today that as we as we move from this place shortly we might have a deep sense that you are with us that your spirit will strengthen us that we might be people who speak the truth in love we ask that you will help us to be characterized by the spirit of Jesus so do us good above and beyond our asking Bring healing to our own hearts and to our homes. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.